Hello to our Commonwealth Club podcast listeners and viewers. This is a quick note from us, the employees of the club. As the world watches in horror the atrocities in Ukraine, the Commonwealth Club is highlighting important organizations providing humanitarian aid to the victims of this war. Sunflower of Peace is an organization working to support the people of Ukraine affected by the Russian military invasion. In collaboration with a global network of organizations, Sunflower of Peace procures, ships, and distributes vital medical supplies to Ukrainian health workers. It provides first aid backpacks, medicines, and essential medical supplies necessary for the very survival of the victims of this war. We encourage you to learn more about how to support this important work by visiting sunflowerofpeace.com. Thank you. Welcome to another podcast from Inforum, an innovation lab at the Commonwealth Club of California. Get tickets to upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. Want even more Inforum? Find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at InforumSF. And now, here's our program. Hello, and welcome to today's Inforum at the Commonwealth Club program. I'm Ina Freed, Chief Technology Correspondent at Axios. I'm honored to be in conversation with Rejma Sajani, author of Pay Up, The Future of Women and Work, and Why It's Different Than You Think. Rejma's newest book addresses the burnout and inequity harming America's women workforce, as well as the myth of having it all. A reminder to our audience, we'll be taking your questions later in the program, so please submit these in the YouTube text chat. Reshma, welcome. Thank you, Ina. It's such an honor to be here with you. I'm like one of your biggest fans. I've been looking forward to this. Me too. So, yay! You know, I wrote, and when we wrote about your book, I wrote that you've kind of become the poster child for the idea that uh, the thing separating women and success in the tech industry in particular was a skills gap. Uh, And a lot of your book now is about uh, saying, well, there's more to it. What did you have right when you started Girls Who Code? And what what did you realize now uh, you had wrong? Mm, Let's start with what I had wrong. Um, You know, I, I spent the past 10 years, you know, telling girls to barnstorm the corner office, to lean in really hard, uh, to girl boss their way to the top. And I was wrong. You know, I found myself in COVID with two little kids running an organization and it nearly broke me and I have resources. And I learned the hard way that having it all is a euphemism for doing it all. And it didn't matter whether you got a mentor, whether you learned how to code, whether you learned how to be brave, um, that women have always been burdened with this two thirds of caregiving work and that we have to stop trying to fix the woman and fix the system. And there's a historical context here. And one of the things your book does really well is set this, that we have treated women in the workforce as sort of the fungible part of the system. When we need more people in the workforce, for example, in World War II, certainly the most famous example, we brought all those women into the workforce. As soon as we didn't need them, we sent them home. Uh, It was a little different in the pandemic. Uh, We needed different things from women. We needed them in the workforce and we needed them at home. What is the historical lessons that we should be taking into account as we're having this current discussion on the role of women in the workforce? You know, that workplaces have never been designed for us. They were always designed for a man who had a stay-at-home wife at home. Um, And that we have always been trying to fit our way in and to be like men 
in order to be, quote, in the workforce. It's why, you know, we've been taught to hide our children. You know, I uh, you know, did an event with Hillary a, a week ago, and she was talking about even when she was first applying to work in the law firm, they basically said, well, don't put your photos up of your of your daughters. And so we've been apologizing. We have to take our kids to a doctor's appointment. It's, it's if our children didn't exist. And if that it's as if that other identity didn't exist. And that's why workplaces in many ways have just never worked for us. And you saw, you really saw this happen in COVID when we lost all of our support. I mean, really what was like the, you know, the, the big point was school closures. Because for so many women, they treated the schools as daycare and as our childcare. And when that support was gone and that we were then asked to step in as teachers and maintain our full-time jobs, it was not tenable. And, and I think that that realization for so many women, quite frankly, and I, I would argue that the realization of for policymakers has still not happened in understanding the bedrock of the, the foundation that women provide in the social safety net of this country. Well, and even though identifying the problem was was a big step, obviously it was a shift. You you know took out a big ad uh, op ed saying you know we need a Marshall Plan for moms. Identifying the problem, the solutions are not so simple when you're talking about such a fundamental tenet has been we'll just rely on women, um, we'll just rely on them to do it. And how do you? get out of this? What is the responsibility of businesses, of governments? And then later, I want to talk about the role of individuals as well. But how do you divide this? Can Is government going to fix this? Can businesses do it on their own? I mean, government should, right? So I, I think that there's like an inherent American value that motherhood is a choice. And so you don't get things. <clears throat> you don't get things from the government. You don't get things from the, from business. You don't get things sometimes even from your partners that you chose to have a child, so deal with it. And we have this very individualist culture when it comes to caretaking, especially of children, and I think even the elderly, that we have to kind of break through. And, and, and we see this with the 50-year low declining birth rate. You know, people don't want to have kids because it's way too expensive and it's way too untenable, which is not good for society. And so government has a huge role to play in providing that support. And I think what that looks like, one is childcare you know, which is what one of the tenants that was in the Build Back Better bill, which, you know, President Biden had said, no one should pay more than 7% of their income for childcare. Most Americans now pay more for childcare than they pay for their mortgage. It is like the most expensive, as you know, right, cost item, you know, for a family. And so government has a role in, in, in helping relieve that because the business model of childcare is quite frankly broken. And, and so that's an important place for government to play a role paid leave. You know, we are the only industrialized nation that doesn't offer paid leave. So, you know, during the pandemic, when people were sick, we've always said, if you're sick, you got to go to work, right? That has been like a tenant again of, I think, American culture. And we paid the cost of that, uh, of not having paid leave, of not having paid sick days, of again, for, for decades and decades and decades, asking women to birth children, and then go back to work. You know, the average woman goes back to work in less than two weeks after having a child. And so that is um, that is hard on you physically, emotionally, and mentally. And it's why women have continued to be either downshifting their you know in their careers, relying on childcare, or just having to make unconscionable choices, to, you know, to make things work. You know, I think the third piece is in is in what I talk about in my book is this idea of you know payments. 
know, that was the real controversial thing that I had brought out with the Marshall Plan because I just threw out there, we should pay every mom $2,400. And whew, people had feelings about that. This idea of paying mothers to be mothers. Now, it sounds radical, but it's actually not that radical in other countries. The UK has had a parental income forever, right? Because there is the unpaid labor that you do in rearing a child that actually has economic value. You know, Oxfam put a number, $850 billion, right, on the unpaid labor that women do across the globe. So, you know, that's the role of government. Now we are two to, two years after the pandemic, no bill passed. Latest jobs report, you know, women are still missing. Millions of women are still missing from the labor force. Men are entering it at 27 times. It is a bull market for men in jobs. Women are still not able to go back. And that's just, again, what's, when we think about those numbers, that doesn't account for all the women who have downshifted their careers or changed their careers, you know, because now, again, we live, you know, people have to work. There's no more of those days where somebody could stay at home. We don't make it, you know, capitalism doesn't make it possible, right, for that to actually happen. So, you know, there's really this role of the of what the private sector can do in the absence of leadership in the government. And let's let's talk about that because I don't, you know, I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I've I've spent a little time watching what's going on in D.C. They can't pass anything. They're certainly not going to start writing checks to moms. <laughs> um, so in the absence of what's needed from government, what role can businesses play? What are the parts of this that businesses can take on? And then how do we actually make that happen? Because it strikes me that while you've identified a lot of the systemic inequities, capitalism is benefiting from the system. Men are benefiting from the system in some ways. They're also losing out because it's their families that are being hurt too. But um, how, what should businesses do and how do we convince them it's the right thing from their bottom line? Because my guess is they're not going to do it out of the goodness of their stock market capitalization. No, it's true. Listen, I think we have a once in a lifetime opportunity. And the question really is, can we take advantage of it? Or are we going to let us pass it by? And the opportunity is the great resignation. 11 million jobs that are open right now, tight labor market. Like every CEO is just desperate for talented workers and, and, and that's women, right? And so, you know, you see this with Amazon increasing base salaries, what from 150 to 350. I mean, it's crazy, but the problem is, is that as they're increasing salaries, the attrition rate is still increasing. So people are taking that increased base and they're leaving in six to eight months. That is expensive. You know, the cost of attrition is incredibly expensive. And so what, what employers have to really think about is how do I get loyalty? How do I get people to want to come here and be here, not just for their pay, but for what we provide? And I think that's the opportunity because I think for women, you know, what women want is paid leave, childcare. You know what I mean? They want support for their mental health. And so if there's ever been a moment, for example, to get subsidized childcare, the moment is now. Years ago, as you know, tech companies started paying for IVF and egg freezing because every women will come in and say, well, what are your benefits on this? But egg, egg freezing is kind of an easy sell because, you know, they're paying once to, to keep you in your seat. Um, it's harder to convince a business to pay for 
um, particularly paid leave. I mean, childcare is tough in a different way. I mean, you know, they, they get a benefit of your, again, they're keeping you in that chair, which is the goal. Um, it comes at a higher and sustained cost. Um, paid leave, there's two issues to paid leave. One is what is the policy and then what is the practice? So um, I want to also make sure we get into uh, particularly tech, which I cover, you know, tech companies probably have some of the best policies around some of these things, some of the more generous policies, particularly around parental leave, um, but their practices don't always support it. That's right. That's right. And so let's talk about that, because I think that that's the key. Um, and I think part of getting the practices to change, I think, is mandating paid leave, period. Right. I don't think you get to, as a tech company, tout your 28 leave, weeks of paid leave unless you can show me who's taking it and that you're not gaslighting people when they do. Like, are people who are taking it getting promoted? You know, are they, is there upward mobility for them in the company, right? Is it actually supported? And I think when you start mandating men to take it, you know, I think that that's potentially when that changes. I actually think that's the hardest thing. I was like, oof, like, I, we need to do that. But that is, that is deeply, deeply cultural because. Do you think it would be hard once you did it, or it's just hard to make that your policy? Because it strikes me that if you told most new parents you have to take leave, they would take it. So it seems the hard part is convincing businesses it's really in their interest to do it. Because, you know, it struck me, and I'm sure it struck you, uh, you know, when Twitter, which has, you know, some pretty strong policies, and they mentioned the CEO was taking a tiny bit of leave, uh, you know, not the full amount. Um, you know, you have companies like Netflix that offer a year of parental leave, but not everyone takes it. You know, I think Prague's an interesting test case because it's exactly what we're talking about. They want to like celebrate it, right? Like our CEO is taking paid leave, but oh, he's only taking 10 days or something like that, right? And so we can't let them get away with that, right? Like you don't get to be celebrated all the way unless you take all of it. And I think we have that. That's the thing. We can't just like, again, applaud them for doing the minimum. We have to actually ask them to be role models in its fullest sense. And, you know, why it's critical, and this is the different conversation we need to be having, is that when men in heteronormative relationships do not take paid leave, you do not change the ratio of work, domestic labor at home, right? And, the, and so companies, by gaslighting men for not taking paid leave or disincentivizing them for taking it, are actually exacerbating inequality. So you don't get to have Women's History Month if your policies are exacerbating women's inequality at home, which is exacerbating women's inequality at work. That's a fundamentally different conversation, I think, that we've ever had, right? The conversation we've been having in our Lean In Girl Boss world is all about, like, how many women do you have on your board? How many women do you have on your leadership team? You know, how many mentors? What's your sponsorship program, right? That, those are distractions, and you say that, you call that out. You say that that's corporate feminism and it's a lie. What does actual corporate feminism look like? I think actual corporate feminism looks like subsidizing my childcare, looks like mandating paid leave, looks like literally having an audit of your policies to see how you are exacerbating gender inequality at home. It looks like rooting out the motherhood penalty. There is nothing that pisses me off in this conversation about pay inequality, right? And, you know, I know we just had the women's soccer team at the White House, but that is not the typical way that pay inequality shows up. The way that pay inequality typically shows up is discrimination between mothers 
and father and between mothers, right? There's a motherhood premium penalty and a fatherhood premium. There's virtually no pay gap between childless women and men. So the discrimination is coming from against moms because suddenly when you have a child, you are suddenly not performing, not committed. Also, because we penalize women when they leave the workforce, right? Uh, by 40% of their salary almost. You never make up those gains. And all of our love, social security, you know what I mean? All of them, you're, you are penalized when you take time off. You lose money in your social security. So it's like, again, the entire way that the structure has been set up is to not allow women to move in and out of the workforce without penalty when we know that they will because they're child bearers. And in terms of this, and you you lay this out very well in the book, this idea that there's certain things that um, are the responsibility and we need a shift at work. And then there's certain things that need to shift in the home, that we're not going to have equality. You said it better than I'm going to, that we won't have equality in the workplace until we have equality in the home. What kickstarts equality in the home? Because again, it strikes me as a system where it's easy to identify the problem and super hard to get that change, particularly when, again, it served people who were born into that male role quite well uh, in the heteronormative relationship, uh, which again, you know, there's more non-binary couples, there's more LGBT people. um, So it does get complicated, but there are a lot of male-female relationships with these dynamics and then other types of dynamics in queer couples as well. Yeah. And I wonder if there's more role models with queer couples in terms of the gender equality, in in terms of the equality in the domestic work that we should be, quite frankly, looking at. Well, it's interesting because I I, I called out your relationship uh, in my article on you. You know, I'd call out mine. You know, I I, my partner, uh, we've certainly been through everything you've talked about. It might not be in the heteronormative way. My partner is trans. He's a trans guy. He's done childcare for his whole career. When, you know, things shifted and school was at home, he had to stop working because we needed all the things that we tend to assign to women, but we needed all of those functions done. I was the breadwinner, you know, and so all those dynamics that you talk about in the book still exist. Even if you have a more equitable relationship, the pandemic still brought on unreasonable expectations Um, in a country where most families have two working parents, where there are two parents in the family. Certainly being able to be your student's teacher and childcare provider and work is an unrealistic expectation. But I do find that it's super hard to change the dynamics within a relationship. And I, I'd love to hear kind of for you, because you talk about this some in the book. And how do you, I, as hard as it is to get government to write checks to moms, and I don't know when that's going to happen, how do you change the dynamics within a relationship? And it seems... I mean, the most annoying, I want to write about this, but the, one of the number one things, I've been now uh, talking about this book for three weeks. It's been out for you know seven days. The number one thing is I get is even when I admire it, it's like, gosh, you should have married someone else. How do we get, how do we just fix our husband? How do you fix your, I mean, you just got to figure out how to get him to do more. Again, as if it's my fault, my shame, my job. And I think that that's what we have to move away from. Because I think that when women are exhausted, when people are exhausted, right? It's like, I'll just do it myself. And what we really need to pay attention to is how did culture put care work solely in the hands of women. Like I think in other, you know, 
non-binary queer couples, maybe there is more of a genuine negotiation. I don't know if that happened with, with both y'all, right? Where there was just a genuine negotiation of like, okay, here's what, here's how we're going to do this. What do you think? I think for me in the hall, it was the def- I was the default. I think that's the, that's the thing is there often is a default. So AJ and I had lots of good conversations. We actually agreed. I mean, from a financial decision, it was pretty clear what we were going to have to do, but it also, and I'm sure, you know, again, I know you all have had this, there's a lot of difficult conversations that go into how are we balancing the work? And I will say we have a, a conversation ongoing about what are the demands on each of us and what does balance look like even within an unequal relationship? I think that's, that's a very tricky part um, of this. And even in the book, I was struck by the fact that when you're offering suggestions, a lot of times, uh, it's a great book, by the way, you should all read it. Um, but it, a lot of it, you know, it'll say what businesses can do, plan for playbook for employers, and then what women can do. Why isn't there a section what men should do? Well, this is the question because I didn't, I, I wanted to not talk about them. <laughs> I didn't want to, maybe that's the next book that's just for them. But in this book, I want it because, you know, my section of like empowering women, and I didn't want to be like, well, this is what you do to change your husband. It's like, this is what you do to change you or to help yourself. Like, so for example, right now, right. It's like Nahal does nights. I do mornings. You know, he's like at a dinner right now. I'm like, you better get your ass home because like, I got this talk, you know, and it's, this is your job. And for me though, if I am home at six o'clock and watch Netflix, he will be like, get the diaper. Can you warm up the bottle? So I have to create a boundary and leave. And so we could say, well, why don't you just keep having that same conversation about him? How it's your job and just sit in the couch and eat your, you know, Cheetos and watch your TV because it may not happen right away. And I rather do what I need to do for me rather than spend the energy trying to quote, fix him. And I rather spend the energy that I would spend fixing him trying to fix culture. Like, so for example, like my Philippines had this wonderful ad about how laundry is love. Can you imagine on the next Super Bowl having LeBron James and Snoop Dogg do an ad about how laundry is love? Like it's so antithetical to our culture, but that's where we have, so it doesn't become again, again, what was wrong with girl boss culture was it was an individualistic thing. And we can't similarly be like, well, every woman has to solve her own problem by herself. We would figure out how to do it collectively. So the collective changes. So I want to keep going uh, later on, hopefully more about what individual couples can do and, and what our individual responsibility. But I also want to turn for, for a few minutes to the opportunity you talked about. There's a couple things that are fueling this moment. One is... Um, there's a big labor shortage in the U.S., and so there is an argument to be made that companies are probably as open now as they're going to be for quite a while to what do we need to do to attract and retain women? What do we need to do to have a more sustainable relationship with all our employees, male and female and non-binary? Um, so there's that that's going on. And then the other big shift that I see as an opportunity is there's all this talk about what the work looks like beyond the pandemic. Um, you know, and I'm hoping we're coming out of this. I don't know. Uh, we're still on Zoom. I was hoping we were going to be sitting next to each other. Um, 
but there's a lot of talk about the workplace of the future. There's probably a hybrid workplace. What could that look out? You point out there's there's some great things about increased flexibility. It's part of what you call for in the book. But there's also a danger of the hybrid workplace where it could actually be worse for women. And I think that's something a lot of people haven't thought about. Talk about the scenario where the hybrid workplace is actually worse for women where it's, uh, and, and how we avoid that. I mean, I think it's all about design, right? So what has happened now is that even right now, as companies are giving options, the men are going back to work and they're talking at the water cooler, planning their plans, and we're at home on Zoom doing laundry in between our calls. And so we are now in in many ways, and I think the judgment about women working, quote, from home is not about working remotely. Like we haven't changed the language. And so we're, again, I think creating a segregated, you know, two-tier kind of workforce. So I think as we're designing flexibility, quite frankly, you should be like, all right, everybody works remotely Tuesdays and Thursdays. And we think about how to design technology. So we all feel like we're still in the room, but we have to be intentional about it. And, and again, you know, maybe, it, maybe it's encouraging more, again, I know we're talking about heteronormative partners, like encouraging more men to be at home and do some of that child rearing, maybe a way to, again, change the, change the ratio. Because we did see in the pandemic, quite frankly, that men were doing more care work. It's just that women were doing more care work too. And because we had to pick the structure piece. So I think, I think we have to think very thoughtfully about design, you know, and it's not just about flexibility. Remote. I mean, I still think it's crazy that we have a nine to five work day in, an, in a seven, eight 30 to three school day. Why? Yeah. I mean, aftercare has been a savior for us. I, I don't know how we would do it. Um, no, for sure. I mean, I think, and this is why I wanted to shift the conversation back from the personal to the systemic is there's all these personal things, but I don't think you're going to get very far until you're not asking too much of the family. Like you won't get equity within the family until we have reasonable options. Correct. Um, and, and I think that, I think the workplace can design that. So it's so crazy to me. You're, you're, I mean, it's so crazy to me that we're still having the same conversation, which is return to work, not return to work. And it's because the men at the top want to have that conversation because they want to go back to the office because they have that stay-at-home partner. Like 80% of CEOs, right, have a stay-at-home partner. So they have an experience, what I think, quite frankly, a lot of people, you know, manager level down have experience, which, which are like, I would like a work day that, that was similar to the school day. I would like not to have to commute into work so I can take my kid to school. You know, men and women, non-binary, everybody wants more of that, I think, you know, more of that control over their time and their schedules. But there's the resistance to that because this this need of, again, I think people at the top wanting to go back to the old normal because it worked for them. So you're almost in this like power struggle that we have to like continue to stay in. And, you know, it's like the new, you know, the new, um, the new resilience, you know what I mean, is about pushing back against work structures and really thinking about design. How do we do it differently? How do we not go back to that same old FaceTime hustle culture, which had nothing to do with productivity and everything to do with the way that we, that's just because it's the way that we've always done it. You know what I mean? And think about what are the pieces that we, that work during the pandemic that we want to take with us as we build this new future of work. What strikes me as among the more challenging things in what you're talking about, and there's a lot of it that, you know, even for folks who read it and agree that that's totally a world they want, is how we get there. 
Um, and certainly, you know, we've talked about the role government could play and isn't playing. We've talked a little bit about the role businesses are playing. Is anyone doing this right? Uh, particularly on the company side, but I also, you've talked about other countries that do have more parental leave that do offer parental leave to both parents. So I think, look, Netflix, you know, um, Deloitte, right. Have gender neutral, gender neutral paid leave policies. Apple still doesn't. Right. Like again, in today's day and age, there should be no reason why any people, not everyone should have gender neutral paid leave policies. It makes it so archaic, you know, to have, to not have that. And just to reinforce for, because people may not realize what we're talking about here. A lot of companies have policies where parental leave is different. Typically they have a language that might not be um, gendered male and female, but it's primary caregiver, secondary caregiver, which by its very nature suggests one parent is more responsible than the other. Typically the woman, right. Um, and so you're setting it up for that dynamic and that expectation. Like just think about that. Just it's it's the same way I think about, for example, the the cult the corporate norm that women hide their pregnancy to the very last second. Almost every woman's done that, and you're hiding your pregnancy because you don't want to be discriminated against or get something taken away from you. I mean, there's a Zoom article, you know, celebrating the fact that Zoom allows you to hide your pregnancy till you're like, you know, popping. Right? That's crazy. It's like we've accepted that as the norm, and so that. We can't go back to the new work to the workplace with that norm that was toxic, and it's the same thing <clears throat> with not having gender neutral paid leave policies because the corporate norm that they're saying to you is mothers do X, fathers do Y, and that they're setting up the expectation that you don't have gender equality at home, and so it makes zero sense if we're trying to get to equality for any company to have not not have a gender neutral paid leave policy period so as we've been having this conversation which as always whenever we sit down is fascinating i still get stuck on the point of some people are benefiting from this system some companies are benefiting from this system um the company benefits if they only employ one person and that one person has in a family and that one person has less responsibilities at home that's that's the way the system has been set up. Um, you could argue about whether men are really benefiting, you know, in, in the long term and, you know, depending on how you define benefiting. Um, but certainly uh, the opportunities that they have are greater in a heteronormative relationship. Um, how with that benefit, like, how do you get the needle to move? You are a very smart political thinker. What are the politics of this? What is the action of this? How do you get what you call for in this book to start to happen? We have to call them on it, right? So like, let's talk about politics, for example. Like we almost had childcare under Richard Nixon. And when it didn't pass, he basically said, well, if we pass this, then mothers would have to come out of the home and into the workforce. You kind of hear remnants of that today. You know what I mean? And what Joe Manchin is saying in, in, as, as to why he doesn't think the child tax credit should only apply if you're working. You know, so so if you are a conspiracy theorist and you, again, the, the data, which is so crazy to me, you know, like, as you know, the data is so clear about what women need to go back to the workforce. Childcare, 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 paid leave, paid leave, paid leave, right? Support. And even still, in this huge labor shortage, we still won't do it. 
So one could argue, because we don't want women back in the labor force, you know, we want them to either be downshifting, working part-time, not be fully participating and doing, quote, the child rearing in the caregiving. Um, and, and so we have to then, and it's the same thing for companies, is are companies playing the same game that maybe government is in that you say you believe in diversity and inclusion, you say you believe in gender equality, but it's easier for you to have a Women's History Month speaker than it is for you actually to do what you need to do, which is so clear is subsidized childcare if you want to bring women back. And again, the cost is it's more expensive to continue your attrition rate than to pay for childcare. Is anyone, is anyone being swayed by that argument? We have a report coming out in, in, in a couple of weeks on this. Is anyone swayed by that? Yes. Oh, I think lots of individuals are swayed by it. Don't get me wrong. I think you have tons of parents. But I, what I'm not seeing is companies, even in Silicon Valley, which is sort of, you know, that the, they'll give you, you know, uh, you know, gyms and all those things. But I haven't seen a lot say we're going to take on child. Because the revolution hasn't begun yet. And we're igniting little fires everywhere. And this is one of those fires, which is that, and this goes back to your very important question, which is how do you get it done? So I can't assume that the way I get it done is by benign leaders saying, yes, Reshma, you're right. I'm going to pay for everyone's childcare. I think the way we have to get it done is by collectively us asking for it, demanding it, I should say, and picking where we go based on that decision. Quite frankly, yes, about the delaying, the egg freezing, but it was women coming and saying, Hey, what's your, what's your, what's your policy? And so, you know, with these, especially with these tech companies, once one person does it, they all start doing it. So we have to figure out how do you get the dominoes to fall? Um, and so now this is the hard part because I do think that we have been as moms, right? We've been trained to be martyrs. We've been breastfeeding in closets. We've been hiding our children, apologizing when they interrupt us or interrupt a call on zoom and so we've literally reconditioned ourselves to be to recognize that it's a seller's market and we can actually demand for what, what we want. That is part of what this book was about, too, is about how do I build that advocacy muscle in you when, you know, in a, you know, in, in not a tight labor market, you may be afraid. Like, right, I had friends who were like, I really wish I could work, you know, remotely on Fridays, but I don't want to ask because if I ask, I might get fired. Or, you know, or passed over or not seen at labeled as not committed. I mean, I feel like that that may have shifted a little during the pandemic. Maybe, maybe not. Um, you mentioned collective action. I am curious, does organized labor, do unions play a role here? Is this on their priority list? I think it, I don't, you know, listen, I think it, it, it needs, I think it definitely needs, is, and needs to be for hourly workers, right? They've been fighting for paid leave for hourly workers for a long time. And I think if, and I think the same thing needs to be on, I mean, I think subsidized childcare is a dream, right? A dream, but I think a dream that can come true. Um, and I think your point about like collective action, what does that look like? What is the new labor union today? And as you've seen, as we've seen in tech for so long, they've been fighting against organizing on sexual harassment and post me too movement. And so, 
So it, it is, but I think again, women and allies have been building this muscle and building ERGs and women's groups and affinity groups and activism. So it's, so it's like, we've been, it's, 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 it's in the ether, you know, it's in the ether. So I, I, I think that it's something that we all can ignite. And I quite frankly, I think all the things that I'm, we're talking about today are the things that men want, that non-binary people want, that childless women want. Like we all kind of want this workplace that works for us, whether we're taking care of an elderly parent, whether it's a child, whether it's a pet that we love, like it's all about how do we live and work and what is the role that work places kind of in our lives and what, what's the opportunity? What's the opportunity? You know, a, a good, a little, a little, um, a little piece of data that I think buttresses this argument is, you know, the journal just had an article out yesterday about how women's wages have gone up. Because again, of this tight labor market, so they're able to demand more salary than they have before. Um, so I think again, it just shows that hmm, what else can we be asking for in this moment? And I have lots of questions. I just want to remind folks that if you out there have questions, uh, make sure you're sending them our way. We're going to start turning to that. Um, what are some of the responses you've gotten? So you put out the call. Uh, for a Marshall Plan for Women, what are the responses you got either from that or from early interactions around the book? What are what are people saying, um, both uh, politicians, um, CEOs, uh, working people? I mean, it's been tremendous. Like, I, I think especially, you know, on D.C., I, we had two bills introduced in Congress for the Marshall Plan for Moms, a handful of bills introduced, you know, in, in California and New York you know, Virginia about needing a task force, you know, because we really like need almost like a women's jobs are that is like holding accountable about these jobs that we have lost and the levers that we actually pull to bring women back. So I think that there is a lot of political support from women, from the vice president, right? From, from women who are like women elected officials who've been fighting for this for a long time. None of these are new ideas, We've been fighting for these things for a really long time. And I think, you know, on the private sector level, I think that there, this is a conversation that's happening in every boardroom. Now it's, I think they're waiting, just waiting for the demands to be made. And so again, it's, it's not going to happen because Reshma's saying it makes business sense for you. You should do it. It's the right thing for society. It's going to happen when women are coming in as they're interviewing, men are coming in as they're interviewing and saying, you know, everyone's coming in as their interview and saying, what's your policy on this? You know, I, I think an interesting comp is mental health. You know, I, I mean, I'm a CEO and I remember when I had young people coming in, millennials coming in and saying, do you cover therapy? And I'd be like, what? We mental, I mean, my, you know, I'm 46. You don't talk about mental health. And I was so blown away that they had brought it in from the shadows into, you know, into the public discourse. And the same thing needs to happen on care issues. We have to take it out of it being our own personal problem into it being the company culture's problem or opportunity. And I do agree. I mean, we have seen that with all kinds of benefits, whether it's fertility benefits, um, mental health benefits, all kinds of things. We have seen that, you know, it's employees bringing it up. And then it's when one company offers it, it sort of starts a flywheel. And certainly in tech or sectors that are chronically competing for talent, um, 
you do see that sort of happen where, you know, at first it's, it's novelty and eventually, and sometimes not that long between novelty and table stakes. Um, so that is the hopeful side of this. And I think another good model is HRC, you know, LGBTQ issues, right? For a long time, it's like we, they pushed the workplace, you know, to, to make progress, you know, on supporting the LGBTQ community. And, it, it, and that led to change, you know what I mean, from a policy perspective. You know, we just haven't seen mothers as a protective, working women as a protected class. Well, I remember, you know, you mentioned HRC and I, you know, they certainly have made a tremendous amount of gains for LGBTQ workers by ranking companies, by saying, here's what it takes to get a hundred. And then by moving the needle. And uh, I think one of the most clever things they did is it takes, it's takes something different now to get a hundred than it did two years ago, than it did four years ago. But I seem to remember uh, I'm flashing back to, I was in college and I was writing something and I remember working woman rating companies. And that was in the nineties. Um, we haven't seen the needle pushed in the same way. Um, and on the same topics. So it is about how many people you have in your board, you know, what are you doing on these, again, girl boss lean in type policies about fixing the woman, you know, what are the, what are the support mechanisms, but we have to, I, I want to know what's your ranking on paid uptake of paid leave for men on rooting out the motherhood penalty on you know, offering flexibility and remote working for hourly workers, you know, or again, subsidizing childcare. We need to have different things that were, that, that you're going to be valued and judged by. Um, and, and women have a, you know, we have a tremendous amount of power, a tremendous amount of power. So if we start, but this is like a whole, I mean, there is a, you know, industrialized complex of corporate feminism. I mean, you're talking about like an entire shift in the way that we have been talking about this and valuing this and the things that we have been quote asking for. Um, well, I have, Oh, sorry. I didn't mean to cut you. Um, so I have a bunch more questions, but we're starting to get some great questions from the audience. So I want to start to work these in. And a lot of them really do get at the underlying gender dynamics. And I think what makes this conversation both fascinating, but also super challenging is it really gets to the core of an unequal society. Um, but one of the one of the questions, which I, I think is an important one, and I, I want to hear what you have to say is, why are we framing this as a women's issue and not a human's issue that making this accessible to people who have responsibilities outside of work? So there's obviously some trade-offs in terms of how you frame it, um, you know, and, and how you look at it. But it, are we right to talk about this as a women's issue is it a people's issue? You know, again, I think it's hard because there are people that are benefiting from this ingrained institution. And so, yeah, I mean, um, I have very strong feelings about this. And I, you know, in, you know, when I started this, I started with an op-ed called the Marshall Plan for Moms. And, you know, you know, when I looked at the comment section, there was a lot of people on the left, my people who were like, well, what about the men? So even in the data being clear of who was being affected, who was two thirds of caregiving work is done by women, you know, millions of women have left the workforce versus men have regained all of their losses. So the data, you know what I mean? The motherhood penalty, the pay, the data is very clear as to who is being affected, discriminated against, 
losing out from this. And so to me, that's why it's important to call it working women. It's the same reason for girls who code, why I didn't call it kids who code. I called it girls who code because it was girls and girls of color that were missing from technology. And I really believe strongly, you know, that if I had called it kids who code, that I would not have taught 450,000 girls that we would not have flooded the pipeline because it was about focus, not exclusion. Because then, then the question invariably was, well, why are we pushing girls out? What are all the things that we're doing to make that happen? How do we stop doing that? Similarly here, why was it? You know, one of the most, fa- I wish someone would, would do an investigative story on this because I'm so fascinated by the decision about why to do um, hybrid learning. Because many countries decided not to close the schools and we decided to do it. We were one of the few you know, developed nations that basically did decide to do that and did it knowing, because we had that data in March, April, May, and June, that, that women mothers were the ones, 90%, doing the vast majority of homeschooling and that they had to supplement their unpaid labor, their paid labor for unpaid labor, that it was going to cause a constraint on their economic parts. We knew that because we were already seeing it happen. And yet we still made that policy decision. And I think that because we knew that women would do it. We knew that we wouldn't strike. We knew that we wouldn't say, oh, no, 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 no. We knew that we would do it. And so to me, it's interesting. I want to know, I want to know why. For example, we know with caregiving work that it's not about the work. It's about who's doing the work in terms of whether it's celebrated or whether it is discriminated against. For example, we know that when a man comes and he's like, I gotta gotta cut this call short, I gotta go pick up my kid. We're like, oh, Joe, what a guy. You're an amazing dad, right? We know that there's a fatherhood premium, that men get promotions when they become fathers because we think that you have to take care of children. So we know that when moms say, hey, I gotta cut this call short because I gotta pick up Sean from school, we discriminate against her. Including, and you bring this up in the book, including other women. It's not just men. Not just men. It's including other women. So my point is, is that we need, by calling it mothers and martial men for moms, and same way to pay up to, we need to, that forces us to say, why? Why do we do that? How do we stop doing that? And, and I think sometimes when we get all the way to parenting or use the word caregiving word, it's like the world as we want it to be not the world that it is right now. And if we want to get to the world that we want it to be, we got to call it for what it is right now. It's the only way you fix it. Another question, and again, these are all really getting into sort of the complicated gender dynamics that are at play here. Um, The question, I'm going to read it as it was written, and then I'm going to suggest uh, a broadening of it. It was written, uh, how can companies make a more concerted effort to bring more women uh, back into the workforce, uh, especially mothers? Are there recruiting practices that need to change? Uh, And I would just suggest, I I don't know if only to the degree that better policies are a recruiting method. I don't think it's that women aren't aware of the opportunities. I think two things happen. One, they don't perceive that they're going to be able to manage the work that's expected of them at home and the work that's going to be expected of them at work. And then also, um, you know, that the companies aren't providing the policies that they need. I don't think it's that women don't know that there's jobs available. Um, but, but what, 
um, you know, if if this moment is about a labor shortage and there's this opportunity, what are the policies? What would make you, uh, you know, what do you think are the things that companies could offer? I mean, I, again, we've talked a ton about paid leave and paid childcare. You know, let's 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 assume those are the two biggest things uh, that companies could do. If they're not ready to do that, what are some other things that are big or, you know, I, I've seen some things. So one of the Silicon Valley answers, and I think it's only a partial answer, but, you know, I've seen um, sort of childcare supplement policies where they offer limited childcare or relief childcare. Are, are those making a difference? I mean, I think when I say something about childcare, it just, it's not like pay for my entire nanny or babysitter or daycare center. Maybe it is, hopefully it is, but it, it's also flexibility and predictability. I mean, you think about so many, you know, hourly workers, you know, who, for example, the average hourly worker who works in retail, if you have a seven o'clock shift and you've now paid for childcare to take care of your children, you show up for your seven o'clock shift and it's canceled, you are out money. So we should, at the basic, allow them to have, have predictability. You know, Walmart has an app that allows people to change, you know, shifts with one another. But we don't, at the basics, we don't even offer them offer them that, which is crazy. So, so, so I think that there are, you know, I think flexibility. I think again, this this push against offering flexibility is, it's just crazy to me in terms of like what it's so clear. You know, we, we, the thing we haven't talked about yet, Ina, is you know, the mental health crisis, you know, as we were talking, another variant again. And so, you know, 51% of working women say that they're anxious and depressed. You know, the CDC released a report that the two subgroups that are at the most risk right now are 19 to 24 year olds and moms. Moms don't break, but we're broken. We are exhausted. We are traumatized. Our children are traumatized. And so when companies just say, well, come back to work, Five days a week. See ya. It's like the lack of acknowledgement and being seen that we, wait, 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 wait. Can you ask me if I need help? Can you ask me what, what, what my return to work can look like given the fact of, again, maybe my daycare center is not open. Maybe the cost of my babysitter has skyrocketed as it should because babysitters are paid less than zookeepers. You know, are you asking me again about whether my child, I mean, my, my son, Sean, seven-year-old, like he eats his clothes. Like he's anxious. My, my two-year-old is, you know, can't talk. You know, I, I, I'm going to a gastro. I was in the ER with him for five hours on Sunday and I have a speech therapist coming. Like I am up to here in just being a mom. And I think most moms I know are in a similar situation. And, and so I, I, I think that really acknowledging that and asking, well, what do you need at the, ba- at the basics is what I'm asking for. And I want to return to the discussion we started to have around the individual relationship, because I did get some questions. Like one was basically like, is the institution of marriage just inherently ill-suited to tackling this? And, and I guess um, rather than get into the history of marriage, because uh, we only have about 10 minutes left, you know, what are some things that couples can do to at least bring these dynamics to the forefront? What are the key discussions that couples can benefit from having? Look, I, mean, I think, did you tell me it's like one third of divorces are because of chores? Uh, I did not, I did not tell you that, but that would not surprise me. But so, so base, this is like a core reason for the breakdown 
of marriage. And so I don't know. I mean, what, I don't know what you, what do you think about this? Like we did, we, I did, I didn't get married until I was 37. And, you know, I, you know, because my parents were refugees, my dad did a lot of, he took me to school. He, you know, washed my clothes that they really did have a partnership because they had to. And so I was very, 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 um, intentional that I wanted to, that I wanted to be with somebody who was going to do that. But I think a lot of the conversation that Nahal and I had, sorry, not to bring up my marriage and up in this business, but a lot of what we had around was, are you going to support my ambition? Cause again, I was having a girl boss conversation mm-hmm. and not uh, like, okay, so you're going to do laundry on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. And, I, and, and I, and so I think in many ways, a lot of us had, we thought we were having that conversation, but we had a different conversation. And so, you know, I do think having this upfront, practicing that, I think the having, you know, do, ha- sharing maternity, paternity leave and the duties, like I love what Canada does is they let you split it up. And I think that like, you know, my sister, for example, her husband did the first six months and then she did the first six months. So he knows where the diapers are, where the froggy is, like when, when, when to buy new shoes. So it's like this, again, all the cognitive labor, because the cognitive stuff is huge, is not only in one person's head. I think that's true. I think also really um, having a continual dialogue on it. Like, I, I mean, I sort of think of you know, the healthiest piece of what I think is, is a really good communication between my partner and I has been sort of that what's on your plate right now, what's on my plate, really understand it. Cause I think what happens in a lot of relationships is you lose sight of what the other person is carrying. Um, and you benefit so much from whatever they are carrying, um, whatever that is in the family, you both benefit from the things you don't have to worry about. And we've cre- we live in a society where, you know, primarily men are benefiting from all these things that aren't primarily their responsibility. And it's sort of, it's sort of like, okay, you're both working at home. We saw this a lot in the pandemic. You're both working at home, the kids at home, but when the kids start screaming, is there a default? Um, And in a lot of families, there was, there was someone whose job it was when the kids started crying to put their zoom call on mute. Um, And I think that's um, continues and it, I think, in, in, again, in heteronormative relationship, it, it falls on the women. And the question is, it, that can't be, that's by design. And, yeah. you know, again, I'm thinking about one of our closest friends, you know, it's a gay couple, you know, um, Paul and Brad. And, you know, I think the way that they really parent Walter and Glenn is they have a lot of support and there's no guilt about that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean... That was for us the biggest moments of stress were when we had less outside support. Um, that was when things really broke down for us. When we had, and again, I think that gets at the, it's an inequality for women. The inequality falls on the women. But I think the big point of your book is the structural support is lacking for the family. And if the family had the structural support, there might be an opportunity. Again, I'm not saying that that would erase sexism because it wouldn't. This is why I didn't want to spend so much time talking about how you negotiate, quote, the marriage, because it doesn't account for single moms, right? Like we should be designing workplaces around single moms because if they work for single moms, they'll work for all of us. 
And if we just focus on changing the dynamics at home in a, again, a you know, heteronormative two-person household, you're never going to solve it for what will may soon be the vast majority of families. That's a great point. I also, one more question that came in, uh, which I think gets to the, where do we go from here? Um, uh, the person says, I'm a chair for a university women's affinity group, which is also a volunteer job on top of her paid job. And I think that's one issue we could spend a lot more time talking about, but that wasn't the question. Uh, you know, what, what do you suggest for people that are in those roles? So they have the ear of somebody in corporate. So, you know, there are these affinity groups and a lot of women, people of color, uh, LGBTQ people are saying, wait a second, we've become the unpaid <laughs> diversity labor. That's probably a separate question, but what, what can the leaders in those groups, uh, where should they be putting their energy? If they have the ear of the CEO, what should they be telling? So them? I think on that point, you know, cause I, you and I've talked about this before. I do think that we have to stop doing the unpaid labor at work, stop organizing holiday parties in the book clubs, except my book club and the, all the affinity groups and not, and do it out of the goodness of not, not keep doing it out of the goodness of your heart, recognize that that is work and that should be part of your comp structure. We do. At Axios, I have to say, there's a lot of progressive policies. One of them is we pay our ERG leaders. That is amazing. I don't. I think you're the exception, not the norm. Oh, for sure. And so I think that we have to start, hopefully this unpaid labor conversation will also get a conversation with all the unpaid labor that we do in the workplace and start also get, you know, pay, paying up for that. Um your your second your second question, which I think is what you're what she's asking, is where do what where do we go from here? And I always say, like, do I burn all my boss t shirts? Do I never give a talk about how to be brave? Like, do we do we just really? It is in some ways it's very exciting. Do we rip it all up and recognize that every time we do that, this the system that I want to break is this perpetual system of fixing the woman and not fixing the system. Like, I don't want another one of my Girls Who Code students to come up to me and say, you know, I'm a 4.0 MIT PhD computer science and I don't feel like I belong here. Or like, what class should I take? No, you're good. Yeah, I mean, I think that's something that we shouldn't lose. And I totally agree because I think there is a lot to learn. I think part of the problem is we're always applying it to a gendered structure because I learned not just tips on how to raise daughters from your brave talks, but also lessons for my son. Um, and there's things I learned that were, I want him to take risks. I want him to be brave. I also want to not, you know, there's a whole bunch of lessons that I think learn. And I, I feel the same way about, the lessons in, in here in the book that all couples, all families could actually benefit, but it doesn't mean that there isn't some hard adjustments. I do think it's going to be hard for all of us. I've benefited from the unpaid work of my partner. For those of us who have benefited from unpaid work, I think it's there's an upfront cost. You're going to be asked to do more of the labor, to pull your own share. But I do think there is a payoff. There is a benefit of healthier families. And, and I think it's so, it's, right, the, we want to get to a post-gendered world on all of this stuff, right? It's like we want to get to a post-gendered world about care, right? That it's not just the woman doing it. It's, it's the person who, it's however you negotiate that or however you think about that in your relationship. Um, 
And I think that that's where we have to get to, which means we have to root out all the gendered stuff that got us here in the first place. And, and, and that is like the tricky, hard, but the hard piece, but, but it's wild. I mean, cause I do think if we don't have this conversation in two weeks or two months, we're going to be going back to corporate feminism. And, and doing the same exact things and then wondering why we're, I'm so sick of not making progress. Well, the reason why we're not making progress, 35% of women in tech leave by the time, I'm sorry, 50% of women in tech leave by the time they're 35. That, this is why they're leaving. And so, and so I think that that is, we just, we got to have a really, we can write the rules again. We can, but we need someone. We need some someone in power to take this on as a priority. So um, whether it's through the voting box or our power as employees, um, I, I still don't think anyone's just going to do it because you say, because I say, because somebody writes an article. So I do think uh, getting that flywheel started. Um, it's easy to see how a small number of companies doing it makes a big difference. States doing it, I think. You know, I'd be interested to see. California has a pretty, you know, it's not perfect paid leave system, but we have a paid leave system. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if that does push other states that want to recruit California companies. I've had like a fun week of igniting little fires and like just saying these things and ch- you should see the chat section for some of these companies. And it's just, it's just given people permission. And it's not just the women, you know, I gave a talk to like about pay up to like an audience of all mostly male tech standing ovation because they want to be home with their family too. Like if this is not just about us, but I think again, going back to defining it around working women just allows us to ask the question, what is it about gender in our gender construction that, that puts us, that gets us here? Um, well, this has been an incredible conversation. Um, as always, I wish I could keep talking to you all night, but I know, um, you've, um, we, we do have one question that we traditionally ask all of our speakers. Um, and it feels, uh, like it's going to need a twist because, uh, the question is what is your 60 second idea to change the world? I think we've had a 60 minute idea to change the world, but I do want, I do want to press if you could push one thing to get this started, uh, you know, a year from now, what would you like to see? What would make you feel like, okay, the book had an impact? Right now, 10% of companies subsidize childcare. I want it to be the norm. Think of the expectation, whether it's like, it's in the way that we think about healthcare, you'd never go work for an employer that isn't subsidized your, at your healthcare, period. Well, thank you, Reshma Sajani, for joining me today at Inform at the Commonwealth Club. I'd like to remind our audience, Pay Up, the future of women in work and why it's different than you think can be purchased uh, through your favorite bookseller. Uh, if you want to watch more programs or support the Commonwealth Club's efforts in making both virtual and in-person programming possible this uh, year, please visit commonwealthclub.org slash events. If you enjoyed this, I do a free daily newsletter for Axios. You can just go to get getlogin.axios.com. That's getlogin.axios.com. I'm Ina Freed. Thank you so much and stay safe. And everyone sign up for Ina's newsletter. I read it every single day. Like the first thing I read. You just did more unpaid labor. <laughs> no, I'm serious though. Thank I'm you. sharing knowledge that people want to know to get smart on all these issues. So thank you. Thank you.
You've been listening to a podcast of Inforum from the Commonwealth Club of California. Support our podcast and find out about upcoming live or online events at commonwealthclub.org slash Inforum. And join us again soon for another podcast from Inforum. You never know who you'll meet. Thank you.